0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church, Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Well, we're going to be finishing up the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, five, six, and seven. Right now, we're finishing up with chapter five. And at the end of chapter five, Jesus gives us his summary summary concluding statement of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a doozy. It's a challenge because he summarizes in just ten verses what every verse was talking about before. And it's a challenge to love. And that challenge is not to love people who we like. That challenge is not to love people who like us. Because that's too easy. Why would God even need to come in human form To teach us that. Even the tax collectors already know how to do that. Like what? Tax collectors? We don't have tax collectors. Yeah, we do. The RRS. (laughs) Even people who work for the RRS knows how to love people who like them and people that they like. Even the tax collectors know that. Even those who are non-Christians, even Satanists know how to love people who love them. They know how to treat people who treat them well in return. But Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to love people who have evil intent. Now that is a challenge. And it's challenging because I know in your life, if I ask you, how well do you do in loving someone who has it in for you? Who knows that when you go to work, and when you go to school, they're out to get you. They're there to make your life miserable. They're there, they slander you, they gossip about you. uh, They might even bully you a little. They do all sorts of things to make your life miserable. Are you loving them back in the way Jesus would? And I think most of us would find that very, very challenging because it's so counterintuitive to the human condition. The human condition is for us to be mean to people who we don't like not to love people who we don't like. And Jesus is telling us to do otherwise here. And it's not just for people who are young, mainly this side of the congregation. It's also for people who are older. I once had a pastoral supervisor. His name is Pastor Darren. Don't go on Facebook and look him up because it's a fictitious name. It's based on a real person, but I changed the name to protect his privacy. Okay, so he's not there, right? But Pastor Darren was my supervisor for a church that I pastored at as a youth pastor. And he was in charge of the Chinese chi- side, I was in charge of the English side. And like most uh, dual congregation immigrant churches, usually the immigrant church is leader. So he was a senior pastor, and I was sort of the associate assistant pastor. And we would meet up every week, and every week I saw it as a chore, because one thing that I don't like whenever I go to the churches as a pastor, is when they try to micromanage my ministry, right? I have a view and a vision for what I would want in the pastoral ministry with the congregation that God has given me, but then someone else is telling me what to do. The classic senior pastor is from the Chinese side and the younger pastor is from the English side kind of situation. But it stopped. Do you know when it stopped? It was when he started becoming bitter and gossiping about his congregation. And this is what happened. Right? He's a for the the Chinese side he was a great pastor. People loved him for the first half year. The honeymoon period. And this is what he did. Every time during prayer meeting, before before he came prayer meeting was sort of a mess. People would just get together and they would gather and they would pray um, but it wasn't very organized. It was just share around and then pray. Things were started not on time, or sometimes they ended late. Sometimes they ended early. It just wasn't structured. And so what he did was he he set a time for prayer. We're going to start no matter what at seven thirty. And on the table of the prayer meeting, he would have hymnals and Bibles and the prayer sheet of all of the praises and the prayer requests set for everyone and a chair right behind it on the table. And so when everyone came, people were like, wow, this pastor, he's really organized and he cares for us so much that he has everything set for us. Well, about three months later, he got sick. But he still wanted to come and lead and help. And so just one time, Wednesday night, he didn't have anything set up. He did the old way. Because he was sick. He didn't have the, the strength to do it. So he just came in and said, all right, let's do a prayer meeting. And then one week after, you know what happened. All of a sudden, all the gossip and all the slander. Pastor Darren is not a good pastor. He's not organized. He used to love us, but he doesn't love us anymore. He no longer puts hymnals out there like he used to. He no longer puts the Bible out there. We need to bring our own hymnals and Bibles now, and we don't, sometimes we don't even use a prayer sheet just because of one time when he was sick. And what happened was that that criticism got to his soul, and he started seeing other cracks in the Chinese congregation where he started hearing different criticisms where he wouldn't have heard it before because that was sort of a doorway, a window open to all these other things that they were saying that they didn't like about him. And every time we hung out after that, it was about the gossip and his bitterness against people not accepting who he was and people not appreciating who he was As their pastor. For the next entire year, every week or to every other week when we would meet and just talk about ministry, it would be about complaints and about how bitter he was of his congregation that he loved so much. And it would ramp up. In the beginning, maybe it was only for the first 15 minutes. After a couple of months, it became 30 minutes. After a couple of months after that, it became almost the whole session. Now, for me, I was sort of happy right? Because I was like, good, I'm not being micromanaged anymore. He doesn't care about what's going on in the English ministry anymore. But at the same time, I was really sad. Because do you know why? Do you know how old he was? He was in his 60s. Here's a mature, grown man who was struggling with unforgiveness and with bitterness to his own congregation because they failed to love them back the way he loved them. My grandmother, paternal grandmother, and let me just tell you this, for those of you that are, that are married, or those of you who are thinking about getting married, if you're a woman, you're going to most likely have more problems with your mother-in-law, okay? Because the, there's the classic thing, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law usually don't get along. Well, it was true for my family with my mom, My paternal grandmother, my grandmother who lived with us, and my mom who lived with us, they always had sort of like this internal passive-aggressive tension between each other where they would argue each other in very nice, polite ways, but you knew that they didn't like each other at all. And so my grandmother was getting older, and as you may or may not know, she had several strokes, um, and she was hospitalized, and uh, a a few years after that, she passed away. Um, but whenever I hung out with her, and it was, it's only because of my conversion to Christianity that I hung out with her, because she was such a hard person to hang out with. And I loved her, and I applied the principles of, of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, and I was able to win her over where she saw me not just as a dutiful grandson, but also as a friend. She would complain about my mom. And she would be bitter. She would tell me stories of what she did from her point of view. Because my, when I hung out with my mom, she would tell me the other point of view. And it's a completely different <laughs> thing that happened. And I didn't know who to trust. But here I am, wedged in between. And there were times where I hung out with my grandmother that I had to tell her in my broken Mandarin, stop, I don't want to hear about this. That's between you and her. You talk to her about it. Don't talk to me about it. But because she didn't have a lot of friends, I was like the only person that she could talk to. And so she would keep talking to me about it. Well, after she passed away, we had to take care of all her personal items. And so we threw away some of them. We boxed important ones. And we found several of her um, photograph albums. This is before the digital age. They had photographs. And a lot of them were photographs of the family. And you won't believe this. Maybe maybe you will, those of you that don't get along with your mother-in-laws. But what she had done with her family photos was this. Every photo that had my mother in it, every family photo that had my mother in it, she took a scissor and she cut her out. Not just her face, but her whole body. It was as if she didn't exist. She cut the entire silhouette of the photo out so that a lot of these photos, you would hold it and it would be dangling. Because, because the silhou, the cut goes all the way down. There's maybe like only half an inch holding the picture together. And I'm like, I knew that she hated her guts, but I didn't know she hated her guts that much. She didn't want her to exist at all. It was later that I realized, well, my dad was sort of like her only son. Actually, there, was, there were several sons, but as a result of the communist uh, revolution, uh, she needed to leave some behind. And my dad was the one that she kept. Um, and when she married my mom, Uh, she felt that my mom stole him away from her, and therefore the feud started. But do you know how old she was? She was in her 80s. So here we have a 60-year-old pastor who's struggling with bitterness and not being able to love his enemies. A mature pastor, the leadership of the church. And then on the other side, we have a worldly old lady, an innocent grandmother who, when everyone saw her, they would go, oh, this is your grandma? Oh, she's so cute. Let's go and talk to her. And she's really nice with them. Also, giving them food whenever they would come and visit. Oh, but she's in her 80s, and she's struggling with the same thing. Bitterness, unforgiveness, the inability to be able to love her sworn enemy, her daughter-in-law, the woman which her son married. And she's 80 years old. We have a 60-year-old here and an 80-year-old here. And they're acting, and pardon me, just like the way I see junior hires and high schoolers act when they realize that there's someone that they don't like or don't like them. And they, they never got over it. You know, there's a saying, and, and I think the saying is true, a big tragedy in life is to grow from infancy to seniority without ever having maturity. It's to grow from infancy to seniority without ever having real maturity. And unfortunately, there are so many of us who go through that. Now, why do I point out loving people that are your enemies or loving evil people as an example of this, of maturity? Because that's how Jesus sees it. You can love anyone in the world, but the test that Jesus gives us that makes you perfect, not my... Words, the words that you read in the scriptures there is perfection and love. And that's what Jesus means when he says, Be perfect, just as God is perfect. In context, it's be perfect in your love for people. And what types of people is he saying that you're supposed to be perfect in love to? People who are your enemies and people who have evil intent. Remember, do not resist an evil person, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those of you that come from a Methodist or Wesleyan background know this well, as they have created an entire doctrine called being perfect in love, or Christian perfectionism, where God will grow you to a point after you become saved, and he will manifest himself by infilling you with a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, where now you'll be able to not just love in general people around you, but even your enemies and you can truly say I have been perfected in love now for we don't really believe that doctrine but we do believe this that biblically speaking if you reached a point where you're able to consistently love people with evil intent and those who you call your enemies or those who call you their enemies that you have reached a very high uh, maturity level and you can call yourself perfect in love Now, before we get to the passage, um, I wanted to go through some things that oftentimes hinder Christians from believing in this passage. There are Christians who will push back on this passage. If we can get uh, the scripture verse up there, the first part, in verse uh, 38 back there, that would be great. But they'll push back on the passage, and they'll do everything else that they see in the Sermon on the Mount except for this passage because they say it's too hard. And it is hard, but here's something that a lot of people don't realize that it's not talking about certain things. Number one, it's not talking about crime. Number two, it's not talking about the context of war. It's talking about personal relationships and people that you might see and meet in everyday life. Because immediately when you read these verses, there are people who are both Christians and non Christians who will say, This is unrealistic. It's impossible. So are you telling me that if ISIS came to your church and, he wanted, and they wanted to blow up the church, that not only will you be okay with it, but according to the principles of Jesus, you, can, you should desire them to do it and even ask for more. Right? Because it says, verse 39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And not only that, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow Well, they're asking to destroy us, so I guess we should want them to come and destroy us more. And then we don't realize, though, that every example that Jesus is using here in this first part on not resisting an evil person is not talking about issues or people that are committing crimes or people that are involved in war. It's talking about everyday relationships. And the proof of that is in verse 40. If you were dealing with ISIS... Why would they go through the time and the trouble to legally and lawfully hire a lawyer in order to steal your clothes? Is that their MO? Is that their modus operandi? I don't think so. If they wanted to take your clothes, they would do it very forcefully and very violently. They would not hire a lawyer to sue you for your clothes, and they would not give you even an opportunity for you to give them more to show the love of Christ. So this is not talking about the context of crime or the context of war. There are other passages in the New Testament that deal with that. For example, Romans chapter 13. Also, the reason why it's not talking about passages or context or situations related to crime or war is because of this fact. If this is true, if that's what it's talking about, if this is an all-encompassing, a verse that applies to every situation, then Christians can't be police officers. If you are a security guard somewhere, then you are acting as a non-Christian. You, you are to be vilified and condemned and we should encourage you to get out of the security field. You definitely can't be in the military and also, you can't be a judge either. And I'm sorry, you can't be a good parent. Why? Because all of those roles require you to use some type of force and even, at times, violence in order to subdue people who are doing what is wrong. So you can't do any of those. Obviously, that's absurd, right? And, but we don't even have to think that way. That applies to those because of the fact that it's not talking about issues of crime issues of war. There are other verses that talk about that. For example like I said Romans 13 and other verses we do know that Jesus and his disciples encountered soldiers and Jesus and disciples did not ask the soldiers to repent from their soldiering. They said something else. Why don't we go to the next couple of uh, passages uh, Sam and I'll explain what I mean. If we go to Luke chapter 3 verses 2 to 3 and 12 to 15 we see this. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, so this is during the time when Jesus was um, young, a kid, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, also known as John the Baptist, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Tax collectors, so the IRS also came to be baptized. Will the IRS be accepted by Jesus Jesus? And John the Baptist, who is uh, guiding people to follow Jesus. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Praise God. We love that every tax season. Verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, repent from your soldiering, you violent and wicked people who uses violence. That is against what Christ would teach. Uh, no he replied don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely be content with your pay so obviously uh soldiers were known to extort money they had the weapons they had the ability to force people to and bully people for extra money for their services don't accuse people falsely and uh be content with your pay. I guess there were some labor union disputes with the Roman soldiers there. You know, Caesar, give us more money. Give us more money. Higher the minimum wage for all Roman soldiers. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And so, for soldiers, they're not asked to change their ways. All the way to Acts chapter 10. Remember Cornelius? He was a centurion, a leader of over a hundred soldiers. And before they even talked anything about the role of the military in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit comes upon them because they believe in the preaching of the gospel through Peter, and they say, you know, why don't we get baptized right now? And they get baptized. So soldiering is not seen as an unChrist-like profession. And why? Because, again, that's a different role. That is not the private everyday sector that's the sector of the government and in Romans 13 the Bible actually teaches us that as a Christian you are to discipline and punish people in order to be a deterrent for them to not continue in their crimes if you are in the role of a government agent being a police officer or being a judge or whatnot let's go to Romans 13 Sam if you can uh, go there verses 1 to 5, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So if you're a Christian and you're a judge, in order to be a good judge, you would have to lay out edicts of punishment on people who truly are guilty in order to help reform them, in order to help shield them from a society which they're trying to harm and attack. But when you go to your private life, then you would apply the principles of Matthew chapter 5. Verses 38 to 48, and if there are people who are hating on him, he would love them to their best of their ability. The same judge which is condemning people who are guilty on that stand with his gavel and with his voice will be the same judge who will be great at loving his enemies in everyday life, in the everyday world. Let's go ahead and go back to the verse uh, 38 of chapter 5. Now, the last thing I want to say before we go through each of these verses, verse by verse, uh, is this. You know, a lot of people don't like this passage, especially Christians, because they feel this passage makes them look weak, right? Oh, there's an evil person coming. Oh, you know, here, here. What do you want? What do you want? Oh, okay, you want my clothes? Here, have, have, my, have my jacket to you. Please don't hurt me. Please don't, right? There, there's, there, there's someone who wants to harm you verbally and gossiping about you. Oh my goodness, oh, you know, I don't like the fact that you're gossiping about me, but I'm a Christian, so I guess, you know, I'll just let you do that. Um, yeah, if you want to say more lies and, and fake things about me, that, that's okay. You know, keep, keep going. And then we see this as if Jesus is saying, you know what, as a Christian, there'll be times where you're gonna be persecuted. Just take it, all right, just take it. And that's just the way life is. But in context, We do not realize the truth, and the truth is this, is Jesus is not asking us to cower. Jesus is asking us to be the best lovers out there. Why? Because at this time, they were not yet being persecuted. He was saying this to prepare them for the persecution that lay ahead of them. He was saying, there will be times when they will persecute you. In the future, they definitely will persecute you, and you're going to stand up, and instead of taking it and retaliating, you're going to love on them. This is a proactive love, not a responsive love. Just as when you go and play basketball or volleyball or whatever sport, and you have to choose before you even start to play whether you will play with gamesmanship or whether you will play with sportsmanship, this is this exact same thing. Just as if you're doing some kind of deal with another businessman and you don't think that businessman is a very good person, or a person with high integrity, you can either play dirty with that businessman or you can take the moral high ground. This is exactly the same thing. Jesus is asking us to be a class act, to take the moral high ground, and to be a sportsman when you enter into the fray and there are all these dogs out there trying to bite you. And he's asking us, stand up and strong. Don't cower. And love on them. And love on them. And pray for them. Jesus is not asking us to be weak. Jesus is asking us to be strong. And those of us who have enemies in our lives, people who don't like us, and those of us that we have people that we don't like, Know how much strength it takes to be able to love them instead of hate them. It takes more strength to love someone than to hate them because our human condition and our human nature is a sinful one, not one that is of God. And thank God Almighty, thank Him for His grace and His mercy and for giving us His Holy Spirit. He has given us the power to be able to love, not just the people that we don't like or don't like us, but He has given us the power to love. Um, even those people who we don't like and don't like us. That is how awesome God is. So it is a call to stand up and be strong, not a call to cower and be weak. Let's go through this right now, verse by verse. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, immediately, most people, when they read this, they'll go, yeah, that's what you Christians are all about. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then they think, you guys are barbaric. Because that's like the most barbaric thing. This is what's called the law or the principle of lex talionis, the law of equal justice or equal reciprocation. But nothing could be further from the truth. To have a law that says an eye for an eye and a tooth a tooth for a tooth, is actually very, very progressive. Because you know your human nature. From the day you were born, all of the day, till you die. When you want justice, most of the time, you know in your heart that you actually don't want justice. You want revenge. From the day you are born, to the day you are die, and someone hurts you, most of the time, you don't want equal pain inflicted on them. You want... Equal pain and a little extra measure inflicted on them so it'll teach them a lesson. And so, if someone steals your car outside of the law, if it was the Wild West and there was no one keeping you accountable, what would you and your gang do? You would go there and you would beat them up, maybe kill someone that's their friend or their family, and you would steal one of their cars back. That's what we have seen in history. That if it weren't for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it would be a much more wilder world out there. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was a law and principle established by God to make things equal and prevent more evil from happening. It was a progressive, compassionate, good law. It wasn't an evil law. Now, you're saying, why are you saying this? Because Jesus was against it. No, no. He wasn't against an eye for and a tooth for a tooth. He said, this is in the Old Testament. And that's the way they did it in the Old Testament. But I want you to go beyond that. Because now we're not living for an earthly kingdom. We're living for a heavenly kingdom in which the heavenly kingdom is all about love. Remember what the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is. It's, it was, always has been twofold. Number one, To show us the values of heaven and compare it to the values of earth, and to encourage us to live out the values of heaven here on earth, as an example to everyone who God is like, so that they can see us and praise our Father in heaven. Remember, that's the whole concept of the purpose of what why we are to be light of the earth and salt, um, light of the world and salt of the earth. And he tells us to go further than that. Okay, you have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if you don't know what he means by do not resist an evil person, Jesus then gives us four examples of what he means by not resisting an evil person. The first one is is here, under verse 39, or verse 39b, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, immediately, our thought is, okay, so we should get beat up and be happy about it. If someone wants to, if someone's bullying me and punching me on the right cheek, I should should also, you know, give them my left, and hey, can you punch me here, too? You know, that wasn't good enough. Punch harder. Okay, you didn't knock me out yet. That's not what he's saying. If you look in the culture and the context of the past, have you ever heard of something called the insult slap? How many ever heard that? How many come from traditional cultures where that was okay to do the insult slap well in traditional cultures in some cultures there's something called an insult slap especially if you're the woman right? if you're the woman and you're out on a date with a man or even if it's your husband and he says something very vile and dishonoring to her in front of people or even in private and insults her she was by her rights she had the ability to slap him in the face and that would not be considered physical abuse Okay, probably something a little more modern than that that we may understand is when the girl hears something offensive and she takes the water and throws it at his face, right? That is seen not as abuse, but that is seen as sort of like a response to an offense, which is acceptable in culture. Well, back then they had the same thing, and maybe we in our culture get this from them back then. And back in the Jewish culture of the day, they had something called the insult slap. So if you were offended or insulted in some way where you were embarrassed, you would take your right hand and the back of your right hand and you would slap the person on the right cheek. Okay? And so for some reason, as a follower of Christ, you said something that was offensive. Maybe you said something that was truthful today. A lot of times, if you just stand for Christian principles, people get offended. I don't agree with gay marriage. What? Right? And they start attacking you. They start trying to ban you online. They start throwing insults at you. And what do you do? You're hit on the right side of your cheek. Turn the left cheek also. Don't respond in kind. Don't do, okay, well, I'm going to now fire you too and then throw all these fire emails of the same sort and I'm going to be equal because God tells us that it's only an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So you send me only one equal that fired me. I'm going to send one email of equal length to you to fire, to flame you, right? No, instead, love on them. So in that situation, you would turn the other cheek by saying, hey, you know what? Sorry, but this is what I believe in, but... You're totally entitled to share your opinion, just like I'm told to share mine, and just let it go, okay? Show grace. Now, one thing I forgot to say is the verse that you want to use in this passage that unlocks the reason behind all of these seemingly counterintuitive verses is verse 45. If we can go to the slides of verse 45... This is the linchpin verse that unlocks the understanding of every other verse in this passage and makes it easier for us to even apply it. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Right? You are to reflect God to them. Because who is God? God is the person who not only gives good things and provides rain and sun for those people who are good, but God is the God who provides rain and sunshine to even those people who are evil, those people who are unrighteous. So here you have, you're living in the New Testament times, 90% of them live in in an agrarian society, they're farmers. And you have an evil farmer and you have a good farmer and both of them are getting the same amount of sun and the same amount of rain in order to grow their crops. What? That doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't it be the good person who's getting more and the evil person who's getting less? Well, God isn't just a God of justice. Then he would truly be a God who's fair. God is a God of grace and God of mercy, which is why when you go back to verse 38, if we can go there, he says, you have heard it what says, It said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I want you to go beyond now. I want you to show grace. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person because I'm the one who shows grace and mercy to those who are not just good, but also evil. So someone comes to you and strikes you and gives you an insult slap on the right cheek. You know what? Turn to them the left also. Show them the grace and mercy of God. If someone flames you in an email, don't flame him back. Instead, Write a kind email back to them. If you're driving a car, and then someone feels like you cut them off, and they give you the middle finger, right? Maybe the, the, they're even more forceful. They give you the double middle finger, and you see it in the back of the mirror. And then they, 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 they put out their hands like this, and they say something, an expletive that I cannot repeat here. Instead instead of of, of veering to the right, waiting for them to come, and then giving them a double finger, and then pointing at them, and then trying to ram them, but not really, trying to do that, and then almost causing an accident that will not only kill both of you, but other people on the freeway. Instead of doing that, just shake it off. You know, just say hello, and then just keep going. (laughs) Just keep going, okay? Just keep going, all right? Show them the grace of God. Show them the grace of God. The second example he gives is this. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Again, this is showing the grace of God. So think about it this way. Since we're talking about cars and using vehicles, let's say your friend just bought a new car, bought a new Honda Accord, have all the accessories on it, and your friend says, hey, let's go out for a drive. This is so cool. I got a new car. Let's go and get some coffee. Okay, he invites you over or she invites you over get in the car at the end of the ride they're so excited about the car they say hey you want to try it out you want to drive it and of course you guys are all excited it's fun sure i'll I'll drive it you know how to drive you know this is the cord it's cool good reliable car you drive it around and then uh oh crash you 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 drive it to starbucks because that's where you're going to go and get some coffee and then you crash right, you broke too late, you crash right into the wall, and the front fender comes off. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay, the insurance will, will cover it, you know, we'll, we'll deal with this later, you know, but um, whatever the insurance doesn't cover, you know what, um, I'll give you the bill and you can pay me back. What? Why do I have to pay it? You're the one that told me that I can drive the car. What are you talking about? You're the one that drove the car and crashed into the wall. You should pay for it. But I didn't want to drive the car. And then the voice gets higher and higher. And now you're yelling at each other. And people outside Starbucks are looking at you too. But, but you chose to drive it. You, you have the will to say, no, I don't want to drive it. For situations, how did I know that I was going to crash into? It's, maybe the car is defective. You bought a lemon instead of something that was good. You should pay for it, not me, right? As a Christian, even if you had that conversation, let's say you didn't, you would say, you know what, okay, I'll take it, right? Now, this is with the assumption that you have the money to do so. If you don't have the money to do so, okay, then there's alternatives that you can use. But let's say you have the money to do so. I'll take it, and I'm so sorry. And you know what? Better than that, after it's fixed, let's take it uh, someplace, and I'll have it waxed for you. I'll give it a new wax job. Oh my goodness, this guy's cool. Now, here's the thing, is that there's more, it's even more difficult than this. You think that 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 is something that's unrealistic to ask for? That was your friend. I'm talking about, Jesus is talking about someone with evil intent. So, for some reason, you got in a car with your friend and me, and and he or she is in a good mood, and all of a sudden you crashed your frenemy's car, and all of a sudden the enemy start part of the frenemy comes in, and then what are you gonna do, right? Are you gonna be like the world forget you? You're paying for it. Oh, now I'm gonna sue you, and then you you go into small came, claims court. Judge Judy comes out, and then you know you do your thing, you know, or you okay, you know I'll pay for it. Don't worry. If you did that, that would blow them away. It would truly show who God is through you, a God of mercy and love. And maybe you might even have the side benefit of winning them over. No longer are their frenemies, but they are now your friend and not your enemy. The third example he gives is verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, at first glance, you're like, what? Forced? So it is talking about a crime. No one can force another free citizen to do something. That's criminal behavior. That's abuse. You're going against someone's private, uh, private property, your own body, and you can call the police on that. What we don't understand is if you understood the culture back then, Jesus was referring to the law of Roman military impressment. And what the law of Roman military impressment was this. As an enemy... Roman soldier, from a Jewish point of view, that soldier had the right to ask any Jewish civilian around them to help them carry their burdens for exactly one mile before they would, they would be released from that legal obligation to do so. And then that Roman soldier would have to find someone else if they needed more help. And so as a Jew under the occupation of Rome... You are legally bound to say yes and help him with his possessions down wherever he needs to go. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, you got an en- enemy soldier here. He's occupying your line. You don't want him there. And he's asking you, impresses you legally to go one mile. Here's what you do. Say no and attack him and knife him. Okay? No, here's what you do. Go one mile, and after that, say, hey, I'll go another mile with you. I'll help you out. And that's where we get the idiom, wow, that guy went the extra mile for me. Have you ever wondered where that comes from? Right, it comes from here, when a friend or a stranger goes the extra mile for you. You're like, wow, this guy's a class act, or this girl's great. She's, like, helping me more than what I needed to do. And the application for this is obvious for us today, if someone that you don't like or someone with evil intent is asking for your help, the Christian thing to do is not to go, oh, that's an evil person. I don't want to help that person out. No. Jesus is asking you to look forward to helping that person out. And then not only doing that, go the extra mile. So you're in school. And you have the chance to tutor any one math you want. Because they got to get ready for the SATs. And then there's Jessica. Ew. She's a meanie, right? Jessica, gossip, slander, she's a bully, right? I'm glad that I'm not her target, right? And then Jessica is asking, asking you to tutor her math to prepare her for SATs. As a Christian, yes, okay? Not only will I tutor you in the math section, let me tutor you in the English section also. Now, if that's too much, it could be this, yes. You know what? Not only will I tutor you, but I'll give you two free sessions, And so you don't have to pay for those extra two two, two two-hour sessions or extra two one-hour sessions, right? It'll blow her away. Why? Now, some people will say, oh, it's because you want to to be their friend or, or you want them to become a Christian. Those are side benefits. That might happen because Jessica might ask you, why did you do this, right? You didn't have to do this. And then you have a chance to share, well, it's because I'm a Christian and I believe this is a way to show God's love. And then you might have the bridge to share the gospel. But no, why verse 45? Because you want to be children of your Father in heaven who not only gives rain and sunshine to those who are evil, but also gives, those who are good, but also gives rain and sunshine to those who are evil. You want to be like God so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Last but not least, you have a fourth example. Verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. How long have I been a pastor at this church? 12 years, or actually nine years specifically and then three years as a youth director. But how long have I been employed at this church? Uh, 12 years, oh, 12 and a half years to be specific. Do you know that starting the second month here at this church, I used to have an office right next to where the copy machine is, where the the new library, you know, the new library, half of that used to be my office, and the other half was Pastor Pastor Michael's office. And people started borrowing stuff from me. You know, sometimes it was them wanting to borrow stuff from me because I showed a really cool Christian video. Oh, Oh, can I borrow it? I want to watch it. Because, you know, Sunday school is only an hour, and so this Christian video is an hour and a half, so I only show segments of it. They want to see the whole thing. I let them borrow it right or someone asks a question and I'm like oh here's a, an article okay because I have file folders full of apologetic information and articles that talk about the Christian faith here's an article go ahead and take it home and study it and then bring it back and you can and then people were borrowing stuff from me so much that I lose track of who was borrowing and so I had a paper a physical paper that was right on top of my desk and it said uh, CCTO Ministry Borrowed List. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? Two columns. And, you know, Michael Folk. Uh, <laughs> uh, apologetics uh, article. You know, uh, Matt Yang. A drum uh, book. You know, stuff like that, right? And you know what I found out? You know what I found out? If I didn't say anything... I wouldn't get it back. I wouldn't get it back. So what happened was that I realized the sinful condition of our church. And I said, you know what? I need to go hound them every three months. I'll give them a quarter, okay? Every three months, I'll send a mass email of all the people who still had stuff to borrow, and then they would then finally be reminded and give it back. Even after... Sending a mass email or a mass text, including the items that they borrowed from me. I specifically included what you need to give back to me in terms of its name or object item. Only 50% of them would still give it back. Michael Folk, it's recorded. You can hear it all out there, wherever you are going to university. Michael Folk still has an apologetics article from me from 12 years ago about what the Christmas star was. Was it a comet? Was it a star? Was it an angel? Was it a special creation of God? But some scientists of the University got together. No, it was the interplanetary connection when all of the three planets, Venus, Mars and Jupiter, got together and it created the star of Bethlehem. Michael Folk still has that article and I still do not have it and I have reminded him many times and he still hasn't given it back because possibly he lost it (laughs) and he just doesn't want to admit it he just doesn't want to admit it but you know what when I study God's word and I've gone through this a few times ever since 12 years ago I just let it go I just let it go (laughs) Because it's, first of all, I don't want to keep chasing after him, And second of all, it, it truly does show the patience, love, and grace of God when you say, you can have it, okay? You, you might have lost it, or maybe it's there and you're just, you're just too lazy to get it. I mean, I had someone tell me, I saw your email, and it's in the car. It's in the trunk of my car. I had it for months, and haven't given back to you. I'm like, you've had it in months. For months, your car is probably parked within 50 feet of my office. You could have just easily got it and give it to me. I give it away. Okay? I give it away. Why? Because it's to show the grace and mercy of God. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now, here we see, then he... Jesus ups the ante, okay? Like, what is the connective relevance between verse 38 to verse 42 and verse 43 to verse 48? Because in your Bibles, usually those are two different paragraphs. What is the connective tissue between them? And the connective tissue between them is this. Jesus makes it even harder for the follower of Christ. Because it's one thing to love someone and give grace to someone who is, in general, a mean person, who is, in general, someone who is just not likable, but it may not be personal to you. But it's another thing to love your enemy. So not only now are you supposed to love, in general, an evil person, but you're supposed to now love an evil person who you know is your enemy. He or she has it in for you or you have it in for them. And Jesus says, you're not off the hook yet. You can't just love an evil person and do not resist them but give to them. You need to also love that evil person that specifically and namely and uniquely does not like you and or you don't like him or her. And it goes on to say this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, what's interesting is that if you go to Bible.com or BibleGateway.com, Logos, or whatever um, uh, Bible software you use, and you write down on your search engine, hate your enemy, it's found nowhere in the Old Testament. That part is found nowhere in the Old Testament. You will be able to find love your neighbor. That's from the Old Testament. But you will not be able to find anywhere and hate your enemy. That's something that the Jewish culture back then added to what was in their eyes biblical in order to justify resistance <laughs> to Roman occupation and other occupations. So they added there, and after a time, it just became part of their proverb. But originally, if you look at the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, There is no such thing as hate your enemy, only love your neighbor. But Jesus is telling them the idiom of the day, which was, it included, not just love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So you see where this is going verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow, I'm supposed to love people I don't like and I need to pray for them too, that's impossible. That's so hard. But Jesus tells us why. In verse 44, 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you know how I know that you're able to love your enemies? Do you know how I know? How many of you have become Christians? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Do you know that all of you were enemies of God? All of you were enemies of God. But God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to save you from the penalty of your sin and to give you power from on high to save you from the power of sin so that one day when you get to heaven, you'll be saved from even the presence of sin in glory. If you accepted the fact that God can love you and you were his enemy, a group, a class of people called humanity, which went out with metaphorically pitchforks to kill God himself in human form and put him on a cross... If you can accept the forgiveness of Christ because of what you have collectively done in history to him through the person of Jesus Christ, and you can have him forgive you, then you have the ability to forgive other people who you despise or who despise you. And not only that, God has given you power by his Holy Spirit to do so. There is no, you may think, oh, that person, you don't know, what that person's like they're just so miserable and again I'm not talking about criminals okay I'm not talking about someone is trying to physically assault you someone is trying to sexually abuse you someone is trying to kidnap your child that's not what I'm talking about those that falls into the category of Romans 13 you get the the government you get the police involved Okay, you defend your son, you defend your wife, you defend yourself. I'm talking about those everyday enemies that make your life miserable, miserable, even though they're not committing a crime, even though they're not committing a felony in order to get to you. Okay, you are able to love them because Jesus was able to save you, and you were able to accept that salvation and forgiveness from Christ. Now, you in return give that forgiveness and give that grace to other people. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, here's a fact that a lot of people don't want to admit, nor do they think about if you only love someone who loves you, and if you only give gifts to people who give gifts to you, have you truly loved them? No, I'm selling my, my um, Honda Pilot right now. Okay, by the way, $32,000, any takers, okay? Or best <laughs> offer, right? Okay, I'm, and, and you're like, oh, $32,000, that's too much money. I'll give you $29,000 for it. Let's say we negotiate and I say yes, okay? Wow, Peter is such a great guy. He's willing to offer it for $29,000, even though he doesn't know it's worth $32,000. I'm happy. They're happy. I give them the car. They give me it in, in cash of $29,000. I, I go home with the suitcase like you see in the, the, the Hollywood movies, right? And then, that's great. What is the difference between that and what happens at Christmas when I give a gift to Kylan and Kylan gives a gift to me and we're happy. You know, I go home with with a a PlayStation 4 game. Kylan goes home with with a, a, a vase that she's always wanted from the antique store. Right? What is the difference? There's no difference. That's not love. That's a friendly exchange. That is an exchange of kindness. What is love? Love is the parent looks at their child who just did a number two all over the place after trying to, 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 to potty train them and is running around and taking a marker and destroying all of the walls and still taking care of that child. Love is when you have someone who is cursing at you and gossiping against you and you have no reason to treat that person with respect but you take it and you treat them with respect. And at Christmas, you buy them a gift. They didn't buy you no gift, but you bought them a gift. That is love because there was no exchange. That is true love. You haven't truly understood love until you have to love an enemy. You haven't truly understood love until you have to love someone who's loveless. That's true love. And why? Because that's how God is. God is the one who gives both sun and rain to people who are good and to people who are evil. And he ends by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to be perfect? I know you do. And I'm going to say something positively racist, okay? Racist in a positive way because you're Asian, right? You want those straight A's, right? You want to be a straight-A student in God's eyes? First, be born again and have the righteousness of Christ imputed upon your soul. And second of all, love, number one, people who have an evil intent, and love, number two, your enemies. In seminary, a place where it's supposed to be spiritual and everyone's supposed to float in the air with clouds underneath their feet, and there's supposed to be worship music around them as they're walking around like they do with the elves in Middle Earth (laughs) there are people that are hard to love there's this lady named Jenny, again her name is not really Jenny don't go to Facebook and look at my friends to find her because she's not there, her name's not really Jenny but there are certain people that just don't like you for some reason for the, the stupidest reasons maybe you're too tall, he's too tall maybe it's because you envy tall people you're too short, you're too short Maybe you have a big nose. Maybe the way you talk is annoying. Maybe the way you dress is annoying to them. For some reason, there's always something that someone can find to not like you. And I had one of those people in two of my classes this one semester, and her name was Jenny. You know, whenever I walk in, she's the type of person that when she sees me, she'll be really happy and nice with everyone. And then when she sees me walk in the door for Old Testament class, she'll go like this. Rolling her eyes. And then why, why did I have to sit next to her? Why did I have to sit next to her? Or maybe she sat na- sit next to, next to me to nag me. This one time, and this is one example of what would happen, okay? You know what I'm talking about, especially you ladies, you know, those really, really catty women, okay? I, I go and sit, I, go, I, I don't have any pants left because I, I didn't have the time to do laundry, right? And so the only pants that I had, had left was my ski pants. So I wore my ski pants and did the overalls and and, and walked to to my Greek class, which she was a part of, and I sat next to her. And you know how ski pants are, when you walk, it goes st, 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 and then the first thing that happened, oh my goodness, are those snow pants? Did you come into this class wearing snow pants? And in my mind, I didn't say this, but I thought this. They're not snow pants. They're ski pants. There's a difference. There's a difference, right? So st- 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 I walked in and sat down. You're wearing snow pants, are you? And you know what? I applied this. I applied this for that whole summer. I said, yeah, I'm wearing ski pants. And, and I owned it. I owned it, okay? I said, it's because I ran out of clothes to wear. I didn't do my laundry yet. <laughs> and that even got her more mad. It's like... What? Everyone else is laughing. I was like, what? Right? So I got that attitude. You know, those people. Every one of us has one of those people. Right? I had to throw the whole semester. I kept loving them, kept loving them, been patient. I prayed for her. Right? Summer came, didn't see her. The next semester, she was registering for classes. And she was, I don't get the schedule. How do I figure this out? Like she was thinking out loud. And I sat next to her and said, Hey, Jenny, can I help you out? And she looked at me, and I was ready for a. You, the guy who wears ski pants to, to class, how do you know about registering for classes, right? And then she looked at me, and she, it was great. She smiled, she's like, hey, Peter, how was your summer? Yeah, sure, can you help me? And I helped her, and for the whole next summer, before she graduated, everything was good. I don't know what happened, okay? It could be she, she was just having a really bad semester, and she was lashing out at me. But I'd like to think that me showing my enemy the love and grace of Christ was what won her over. All of you have someone or a couple of people who's like that. The Jennies in your life. Let those people be the challenge for you to love and apply these two major passages of the Sermon on Mount to your life. To love those who are evil and to love your enemy. Let's pray.